Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. guys welcome back to another episode of c is for creepy thank you so much for listening to last week's h episode it was so great to see all of the listens and downloads so moving right into i stories this week i'm pairing my eye for insanity defense Ooh. when a defendant uses the insanity defense it means that they are admitting to the action committed but asserts a lack of culpability due to mental illness. Okay. While the insanity defense is controversial, it was put in place to protect those who are incapable of understanding what they have done and that was out of their control. In short, they're not capable of understanding whether an action was morally or legally wrong. So people that have like the physical body of let's say a 30 year old but might only have the mental capacity of like a five-year-old that's a possibility yeah there's definitely been instances of that happening um like for those folks specifically or like severe trauma um that can make somebody just kind of snap that that's a little different i'll actually get to that right now so it's different than like a diminished capacity defense as while they both take mental competency into account the insanity defense is like a not guilty verdict while diminished capacity is basically pleading to like a lesser crime essentially taking away the intent of the crime committed okay okay so people who like snapped like those are more like crimes of passion Mm -hmm. so they understand what they've done to in a sense right yeah. like they know that they've done a crime so just in the moment they just there was no other option yeah okay yeah well instances of defendants using the insanity defense or mental disorder defense is highly publicized it's not an especially common defense hmm. that's actually very surprising well, the most recent statistics I found was from a 1991 study that was conducted <laughs> over eight states. I know, I looked for like so many articles and they were all cited, though, this one particular study. Oh, so okay. I guess it just hasn't been in the news that much since then. Okay. But it showed that less than 1% of trials involved the insanity defense. And of that 1%, only 1 in 4 were successful. I guess that actually makes a lot of sense because you only really hear about like huge cases and almost all of them do plead insanity. Yeah. But in reality, that's probably the 1%. Less than. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is also different than a defendant pleading temporary insanity where the defendant would regain sanity after committing a crime during which time they had a lapse in sanity. Like I said, it kind of goes back to that, um, to the previous statement with the, with the uh, crimes of passion and stuff. So, like, that would be... You just blacked out. Yeah. Okay. Just had a moment. <laughs> like, okay, fair. I can appreciate that. I like that they are two different things, though. When we, like, as I start covering more, like, specifically, like, law-based ones, they're going to be, like, extremely specific, and they're worded in such a specific way. Like, the wording of these laws is written to really, like... Make it difficult, but protect those that actually need it? Yes. Okay. Well, sometimes they protect, sometimes they don't. Like, it's very convoluted (laughs) at the end of the day. That's what it boils down to. It's a system. It's the system. If they can put red tape, they will. (laughs) Fair. The defendant using an insanity defense is evaluated by forensic mental health professionals who give expert testimony to the jury. These professionals cannot give testimony to the defendant's responsibility to the crime, Mm -hmm. 
Oftentimes, those found not guilty by reason of insanity will end up institutionalized for a longer period of time than those who serve prison sentences for similar crimes. Okay. I'm curious the difference in care. Well, so if I was arrested as um as like an insanity plea, would I be in a padded room for the next 30 years rather than a cell for the next 15? So I think it would depend on the crime committed. Like okay. maybe not a padded room, but there was like so in Canada, they go before the sentencing board if you receive that verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity mm-hmm. and from there they either like the uh, a judge a think a doctor or somebody else they come to like they come up with a plan for your institutionalization yes and then like, they come up with like review periods and stuff like that Okay. That's like pretty, like a very condensed version of what I read. Yeah. But so there is still some care, but most of the time, and like it depends, like, because laws are always changing too, right? It's hard to say exactly what will happen. So most of the time, people that are sentenced end up being institutionalized longer. So I'm curious if the law changes after you've been sentenced. Do you get the new law or do you have. I think that would be up to your lawyer to either appeal or like that. That's I think what would happen. Okay. Not a not an expert, but gray area for us. Gray gray area for us. That, that's okay. what I think would happen. Okay. I think I've heard that before. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that you came up with an answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Da, da, da. So I'm not going to get super in-depth into the tests used to evaluate mental capacity. Or, sorry, evaluate mental competency. But there is a few different ones. And depending where you live, it's usually a combination of these four used. Okay. So this includes the McNaughton rule, which determines if the defendant knows what they did or if they were unable to tell the difference between right and wrong due to a disease of the mind. Okay. Next, next is the irresistible impulse test, which aims to show if, because of a mental illness, the defendant could not control their impulses. Next is the Durham rule, which does not use clinical diagnosis, but claims that a defendant defendant's, quote, mental defect, unquote, resulted in a crime. Last is the model penal code test for legal insanity, which according to finelaw.com says, quote, because of a diagnosed mental defect, defendants either failed to understand the criminality of his acts or was unable to act within the confines of the law, end quote. So basically it's, was it right or wrong? Was I able to control that impulse? Like, do I have a mental instability? Like, that's what it boils down to, to try and determine. So all four tests seem gray area relatively similar. Like, they all have their differences, but it's all to test if you have the mental ability to know what you've done and Mm -hmm. is it right or wrong. Yes. Okay. We're going to dumb this right down. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more to it. There is. Like, I could honestly go, like, on for pages over the specifics and, like, why these tests have their names and all that stuff and, like, some of the flaws of them. But, like I said, I just wanted to mention it because I'm covering insanity defense. Mm-hmm. Okay. But now, on to my case. Ooh, I'm so excited. Okay. I'm going to cover the Shell Lake Massacre this week. Okay. It actually took place in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. That's not surprising. Did you ever hear? Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Okay. But I've been to Saskatchewan. (laughs) Okay. I would also like to shout out the podcast Canadian True Crime who covered this case and that they had a lot of really well researched information. Okay. They were great. So, Victor Ernest Hoffman was born the fifth of seven children 
to Robert and Stella Hoffman in 1946. Stella Hoffman? Real trooper. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I get it's 1946, but like... I guess there's probably nothing else to do. There was no Netflix or Skip the Dishes. Well, the family <laughs> lived in Les, a rural farming village located about 98 kilometers north of Saskatoon. The Hoffmans were hardworking and they practiced mixed farming, growing grain, and raising cattle. They were also devout Lutherans, resting on Sundays, and they regularly attended church. I would love a cow. I would love a cow, too. <laughs> I love little baby cows. They make me so happy. Right? Like if Jeff and Joey would let us bring a cow home, oh. I would. Mm -hmm. Especially like the curly-haired ones. Or like the long-haired ones. <laughs> Yes, I have a lot of thoughts about cats. <laughs> Anyways, back to darkness. Uh, so between the amount of children the Hoffmans were raising and the amount amount of work they had, it's easy to understand how they didn't notice that something wasn't right with Victor right away. Well, Victor was a shy toddler, and nothing he did as a small child was like really strange. And like as he grew up, he hit all of his regular childhood marker milestones like, yeah all okay. the developmental milestones this changed when he was six years old and starting school that is the first time he remembers seeing what he called the devil oh lord have mercy okay victor described a six foot tall pitch black creature who was naked but genderless with a tail so a shadow person with a tail Okay. I don't think, like, so much shadow person. Like, I think it had, like, defining features. Ew. Like, it, well, I'll get into a clearer description in a bit, but... Ew. Okay. Yeah. Around this time, he would also start hearing a never-ending tapping sound. He recalls being woken up to the sounds of drumming steadily growing louder. Did he have Tourette's? No. no. Okay. No. Just you're saying like the tapping sound could have been maybe like a tick, but okay. I'll get to it. Okay. I'll get to it. Victor found himself trapped in a war between the devil and angels. Around the age of 10 is when his paranoid delusions started to manifest into frightening impulses. Victor had developed the urge to kill. When meeting a stranger, he would want to kill them. The 10-year-old started coping with these urges by taking them out on animals. Oh, by the way, there's going to be some animal abuse. Um, his first victim was a cat who he found caught in a magpie trap. He threw the cat into a smokehouse and left it there for three weeks. But eventually he released it after feeling guilty. It was still alive. I guess so. Yeah. Okay. Yep. But unfortunately, this wouldn't be the only instance of animal abuse and murder. Okay, wait. So he has a conscience. Oh, yeah. Kind of. Okay, 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 okay. We'll get to it. There's a lot of we're getting to it. There's going to be, like, this, I'm sorry, I should have warned you guys at the beginning that my case is going to be pretty long this week. There's a lot of getting to it. There's a lot of getting to it. <laughs> sorry it get about better? that, guys. It gets, like, it's a super interesting case, but, like, there's a lot of his psyche and, like, his development that I really feel like we've got to talk about to oh, yeah. really understand. You have to watch it unfold itself. Exactly. Exactly. So it gets better. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, this wouldn't be the only instance of animal abuse and murder. Continuing to hunt cats, dogs, and other wild game. He claims to have killed, like, 700 squirrels in the area. And he never told his parents about any of these, like, murderous feelings or any of his other problems. Okay. Okay. It wasn't until he was in, like, later grade nine when Victor's principal asked the Hoffmans to come in for a meeting. They thought that he was a smart and healthy boy. Like, they didn't think there was anything up with him. And even then, the meeting was only to discuss Victor's absence from school. Okay. Like, Victor was helpful on the farm and could figure out mechanical issues that others couldn't. Like, he was an excellent problem solver. He was very smart. Okay. He was intelligent. Well, like, he, yeah, he, like, they, they, you know, most kids, especially men, were dropping out of school early in that day and age to go help on the farm. And, like, 
his principal was encouraging that he continue on to his grade 12. Mm -hmm. So, like, he was intelligent. Okay. Okay. His parents truly had no idea about the war raging in their son's mind at that point. While having breakfast one day, Victor heard a voice out in the yard, so left the kitchen to meet the owner of the voice. He had heard the devil, and what he saw before him was a six and a half foot, 300 pound, pig-faced man who happened to be in the nude. Okay. The devil told Victor if he knelt before him, Victor would become very rich. No. As one does. Uh... As a man after my own heart, Victor, being the smart ass that he was, only got down on one knee. <laughs> Thinking that, well, he might not be as rich, but then he'd also get to keep some of his soul, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, pretty smart, right? Like, you know, give me some money, but just test the waters, I guess. Well, when the riches did not come forth, Victor believed that it was because he did not fully submit to this devil. The pig-faced demon visited Victor many times. Between 15 and 17, Victor developed an obsession with firearms. On a couple of occasions, he broke into a firearm shop and stole guns and ammo. The second time he committed the theft, he was caught, and after the first night in jail, the tapping noise returned as he went to, as he tried to sleep. Okay. And this noise carried on for weeks. I would go insane. Right? <coughs> that was a shit-eating grin if I've ever seen one. <laughs> That's so awful. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. Victor was also being visited by angels who appeared to him as human women and heard messages from God. Hmm. They promised Victor that they would take him to heaven if he killed the devil. At this point, the devil had wanted Victor to sell him his soul and threatened he would die a million times if Victor did not comply. Late May 1967, Stella Hoffman heard gunshots coming from the yard. She ran out and saw Victor holding a three hundred three rifle. He fired again, looked at his mom, and said, I shot the devil. Okay, after, honey. after some convincing, Stella was able to get the firearm from Victor. Later, while Victor was having a conversation with the pastor, Stella overheard Victor tell him that, quote, I'd like to kill mom. Oh. End quote. So it was at this point that the Hoffmans realized that their son needed some professional intervention. Victor was 21 years old at the time. You know, it's shitty that it took them 21 years to figure it out, but at least they didn't, like, sweep it under the rug. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, I think it's very, uh, especially in that day and age, like, there is no real discussion about mental health or any outsource, like, any outreach for mm -hmm. that. So, like, they recognize, like, okay, there's obviously something up. Yeah, so instead of trying to just sweep it under the rug and ignore it... At least they were like, look, we need to uh, figure something out. Yes. Did Okay. Did they have cows go missing? I don't know about that. Okay. Don't know about the cows. Okay. So I was like, if he was killing animals and he was killing like their family's animals, would nobody have noticed? I don't think it was necessarily like the family's animals. I think it's like lots of it was just hunting as well. Animals like, I mean, of opportunity. Yeah. So okay. neighborhood cats, like like I said, seven hundred squirrels. So <laughs> every dog's heaven. Mm-hmm. After being evaluated by a psychiatrist at the Saskatchewan Hospital in North Battleford, it was determined that Victor was quote a schizoid end quote. And needed to be hospitalized. Victor voluntarily checked himself into a mental health facility. While hospitalized, it was clear that Victor was not mentally or physically well. While he was cooperative during exams, he was withdrawn and had to be prompted to talk. He was apathetic and gave short answers. He also complained of stomach cramps and a burning sensation. Did he have an ulcer? No. Their, their burning sensation, they thought, was from the chemicals at 
that were being sprayed onto the crops in the fields. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When he told hospital staff about seeing the devil, instead of explaining to him that they were like hallucinations, they just laughed at him. No. Yes. (laughs) So this is a horrible joke. Victor was a bit of a horny devil himself, as he masturbated daily, despite fatigue and sleeplessness. Just if you gotta go, you gotta go. Fuck. He was diagnosed with a schizophrenia disorder and was treated with tranquilizers, psychotherapy, and 12 rounds of electroshock therapy. Because that's gonna help jungle his brain back together. He was released into his father's care July 26, 1967. When Robert asked if his son would be okay, the doctor told him that Victor would be himself in a year or two. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I feel like coming from, like, today's standpoint, we know that that is just straight up wrong. It but is. back then it was... Well, and, like, Robert was a farmer. Like, he's not a medical professional. They didn't have Google right yeah like he's taking this doctor's word that oh this is an expert they know what they're talking about i'm gonna have my son back to normal in a year or two do they know why we released him so he was showing signs of improvement during the electroshock therapy okay but it was mostly because victor Cause... knew that if he kept talking about seeing the devil he would be there forever and continue to be shocked so he got smart God's very smart. I said he was an intelligent man. Okay. So he conned his way out. Essentially. Not really. That's a really poor choice word. It is. Especially like, I mean, I personally don't like getting like static shocked. Could you imagine 12 rounds of electroshocks? No. No. So yeah, he wanted to get the fuck out of there. And I don't blame him. No. Absolutely not. Okay. Victor was good with taking his medications for about three weeks after being released from the hospital, but they made him feel very weak, and he was needed to work on the farm. On August 11th, Victor no longer felt okay, and so, like, he didn't feel okay after taking the medication, like, he was tired of feeling weak, so he stopped taking them. Okay. Okay. Victor knew that something terrible was going to happen just had an inkling or like he actually knew that like something bad was gonna happen if he went off his pills he had already gone so this was already after he'd went off the pills okay he was no longer feeling weak he like he just knew that he was gonna do something terrible and he's hasn't gone to his parents before so he wasn't gonna go now yep the urge to kill had never left him and he was starting to have prophetic visions of death. He didn't say anything because he would rather die than return to the hospital to endure the electroshock therapy again. Fair. The night of August 14th, after trying to fall asleep on the couch, but being unable to do so, Victor made his way out to the garage. He saw a dog, thought about killing it, but dismissed the impulse. Okay, so that's some growth. You know what? He dismissed the impulse and did not kill the dog. Mm, We'll get to it. (laughs) He spent an hour working in the garage when a sensation came over him. On the right side of his head, he felt as though his whole body had been cut in half and something left him. The need to kill was overpowering, And there was a bloodlust that demanded to be satisfied. Victor filled the car with gas, put a loaded twenty-two caliber rifle in the car, and drove. He drove for hours, not knowing exactly where he was going. He felt like killing animals. And he also felt that that wouldn't be enough. Mm -hmm. He wanted to live out the fantasy he had had since he was ten. He wanted to kill a person. Oh, right. I guess at this point he has never killed someone yet. Nope. Ooh. So he drove until it was about six in the morning when he pulled up into the front of a white farmhouse. 
He recognized it from his visions. This was the house. He got out of the car with his rifle and went inside. The house belonged to James and Evelyn Peterson. They had nine children, eight of them living at home. Oh, no. The children were aged from 17 to one years old. The Petersons ran a farm, and their daughter, Jean, who was 17, was going to be competing in an athletic event in the neighboring town in a few weeks. And to help fund this, James had requested the help of a neighbor to help harvest some grain to take for the sale. Okay. James was the first person Victor Hoffman saw when he entered the kitchen. James yelled, but Victor shot him four times. Oh my god. James fell to the floor and Victor continued to walk through the house. The rest of the family was awake. Victor walked into the children's room, but he didn't see them as human. He said that they saw like... He said that they looked like pigs, and he had no respect for them. Oh, God. He shot each of the children, reasoning that he had already committed a murder, so why stop now? Oh. I'm sorry, it gets a little worse. He heard Mrs. Peterson jump out of the window and into the yard. Victor went outside and shot her, too. He came back inside, shot everybody again. To ensure that they were all dead. Oh and shit. In the bed, sandwiched between her now dead sisters, was four year old Phyllis. It is most likely that he didn't see the girl, but he claimed that he spared her because she had the face of an angel. He heard crying outside and saw baby Larry on the ground. Aww. This is rough. With his mother dead, Victor reasoned that the baby probably wouldn't make it. So even though he didn't want to, he shot the infant. Oh my god. Okay. In a haze, he attempted to gather some of the bullet casings before leaving the farmhouse. And like he shot, I think, like 28 bullets and 27 of them found their markers. He only collected like two like, like a handful, like definitely not even close to all of them. Just like such a shitty attempt to try and cover his tracks. Okay. The neighbor who was coming to assist the Petersons with farm work thought it was strange that nobody was out in the field at nine, but started working anyways. Oh my God. After about an hour, he made his way to the house to see what was going on. The normally busy house was eerily quiet. After seeing James' body on the kitchen floor, the neighbor left to go to town as neither of the farms had a telephone. Officers were on the scene right away. Walking around the house and taking in the amount of bloodshed was sickening. But imagine the surprise when there was movement on one of the beds and finding little Phyllis still alive. Holy shit. The officers took the child outside to a neighbor's, and the manhunt began. Soon, the world heard about the Shell Lake murders. About four days after the massacre, a neighbor of the Hoffmans went to the RCMP detachment and said, quote, My neighbor's son just got out of the mental hospital, and he likes guns. End quote. <laughs> this was a lead that they followed up on. After confirming that rubber boots matched the prints found at the scene, they arrested Victor Hoffman on murder charges. Hmm. While combing the Hoffman's farm and surrounding area, two wallets belonging to the murdered members of the Peterson family were discovered. It's always the wallets in the bushes. <laughs> Don't take them. Mm-hmm. Don't put them in bushes. Jeez. <sighs> I've talked a lot about Victor Hoffman and his mental instability, which clearly suggested that he would eventually harm someone. Mm -hmm. It was now up to his lawyer, G.E. Noble, to prove in a court of law that this 21-year-old man, who had just committed Canada's worst random mass murder, was not guilty by reason of insanity. Did the devil make him do it? The devil? The devil? Made him commit the murders? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Considering that Noble was assigned to Hoffman's case, (laughs) and while the defender 
had 18 years of experience, he did not have much knowledge of psychiatry. Luckily, Noble understood that if he didn't understand how, just how sick Hoffman was, there was no way he would be able to make a judge and jury understand that. Mm-hmm. After reviewing hospital records, like from his time in the mental institution, it was clear that Hoffman was very sick when the incident occurred, but further testing would be needed to prove Hoffman's mental status. Hi, Zeus. I know this is disturbing. This doctor from Saskatoon tested and interviewed Hoffman over two days. The doctor reported that Hoffman did not feel guilty as he was only doing the devil's bidding. In fact, he felt more guilt for the thefts he had committed in prior years than the massacre he just committed. Yikes. Hoffman was found to be a paranoid schizophrenic, but was also found fit to stand trial as he understood the charges before him and also what was going on around him, and he could also instruct counsel. Therefore, his trial began January 8, 1968, on two counts of non-capital murder. Okay. So capital murder charges were, like, at the time it was meant that they... Got those written down. Meant that they were guilty of... Or meant that they were charges of killing on duty police officers or prison guards and non-capital murders pretty much means everybody else okay yeah i could see the look in your eye i was gonna ask and i'm like if she didn't write it down no i knew that one was coming okay <laughs> okay so there was testimony from hoffman's mother about the his behavior and like the lawyer had said you know it was so nice like here she is, like a nice woman, just sitting there in her pretty blue dress, being like, this is my son. Mm -hmm. This is how he was behaving. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> right. There was also a very long discussion with Dr. Hopper about what schizophrenia is, along with how Victor's perception regarding his crimes was. Mm -hmm. See, it was clear that Will Hoffman may have known what he was doing with, like, he knew legally it was wrong to commit a murder, showed by, like, the clumsy attempts to collect the bullet's casings. He did not feel as if it was morally wrong. Okay, because he was doing the devil's work. Right? He was being instructed by a higher power. So while the Crown brought more than enough evidence forward to prove Hoffman had committed the murders, there was absolutely no motive that could be brought forth. Okay. The jury took three and a half hours to deliberate, and they eventually reached the not guilty by reason of insanity verdict. Okay. In this case, the not guilty charge did not equate to freedom for Victor. He was placed in an institution for the criminally insane in Ontario since January 1968 indefinitely. Oh. Hoffman had wrote to his lawyer, Mr. Noble, quote, I'm going to tell you something. The North Battleford Hospital reduced my resistance for acting out in violence. Before I went to North Battleford Hospital, I was always tempted to kill, but I could always put it out of my mind. End quote. Holy shit. Right. Victor Ernest Hoffman died of cancer while in custody May 21st, 2004, at 56 years old. Hmm. And that is the story of the Shell Lake Massacre and Victor Ernest Hoffman. Holy shit. Right? That's wild. So that was my eye. Let's hear about yours. It's kind of hard to top that. So my eye, we're going to Ireland. Ooh, fun. Yeah, so we're doing Kilkenny, Ireland. Nice. Kilkenny is situated on the River Nore in a medieval town in southern East Ireland. Kilkenny, often referred to as the Marble City due to its black marble quarries, began with an early 6th century religious foundation. This relates to a church built in honor of St. Candace, now St. Candace's Cathedral. It was a major center from at least the 8th century, and there was some prehistoric activity that has been recorded suggesting intermittent settlement activity in the area during the Mesolithic and Bronze Age. Nice. The 2nd century. Hmm. Kilkenny 
only became a real significance in the 12th century when it was established as the capital of the Norm colony in Ireland. There's a whole thing about like all the colonies and mm. invasions they had. Mm-hmm. I did not get into it. That is totally okay. So if we're referring to like the Norman colony, colony, mm-hmm. I have no other notes. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Following the Norman invasion of Ireland, as I'm telling you, I have no other notes. Richard Strongbow, a lord of Leinster, built the first castle from wood at a major crossing point on the Nore in 1173, near the modern-day Kilkenny Castle. William Marshall, Strongbow's son-in-law, began the development of the town of Kilkenny and a series of walls to protect the citizens in Kilkenny. In early Norman times, up to the late 12th century, Kilkenny was the capital of the colony in Ireland. Cool. Mm-hmm. So by the late 13th century, Kilkenny was Norman-Irish control. The Norman present in the town is still very evident. The original church at St. Candace's Cathedral became known as Irish Town, and the Anglo-Norman area inside the wall became known as Hightown. Mm-hmm. So, some important places in Kilkenny's history. The Kilkenny Castle. Okay. Strongbow's son-in-law, William Marshall, a prominent earl with large estates, constructed Kilkenny Castle in 1195. It was completed in 1213. The ditch surrounding the castle can be seen today. The castle was a square shape with towers at each corner. Three of the original four towers are still standing to this very day. Wow. Mm-hmm. The castle became the estate to a powerful family, the Butlers of Ormond, in 1391. I love these names <laughs> so much. The Butler family arrived in Ireland with the Norman invasion and held on to the property for over 500 years. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, but then they um, pretty much gave up the property like wow. the family did. And the property was transferred to the people of Kilkenny in 1967 for a whopping 50 pounds. Fuck yeah, powers to the people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gonna get their castles back <laughs> the castle and grounds are now managed by the office of public works the gardens and parkland adjoining the castle are open to the public awesome yeah so if we ever go to ireland hell yeah and then the second big one is saint candace's cathedral and tower mm-hmm. kilkenny's pre-norman history still towers above the city in the form of the ninth century saint candace's christian round tower that's a mouthful <laughs> guests can climb up the inside of the tower for fantastic panor- panorama views of kilkenny city and the surrounding countryside nice the 13th century cathedral whose name is derived from saint candace the saint whom the town is named after is built of limestone in an early gothic style which is like my favorite style <laughs> many parts of the cathedral have been restored to the original specifications with many historically significant monuments still residing within the cathedral. Nice. Yeah. So, you ready? I am so ready to hear about ghosts. We're not there yet, but yes. Oh, okay. Okay. In the late Middle Ages, 1320, the first recorded instance of a person being charged with witchcraft in Ireland was Dame Alice Kiteller. Oh, cool. The only child of an established Hiberno-Norman family in Kilkenny, the trial of Alice, her son, and ten others for heresy. For heretics? Heresy. Okay. Like, not conforming to the norm. Was one of the earliest witchcraft accusations in Europe. It was the first known trial to treat women practicing witchcraft as an organized group. Well, yeah. While those accused of witchcraft were not tortured and executed on a large scale until the 15th century, in Kilkenny, those convicted were whipped, and Petronila de Meath, Alice's maidservant, was burned alive at the stake. She was the first case in Ireland's history of death by fire for the crime of heresy. Wow. Uh Uh-oh. That's a poor lady. Right? Solid start. So, the Hiberno-Norman Kilkenny presence in Kilkenny was deeply shaken by the Black Death, Mm. which arrived in Kilkenny in 1348. 
because most of English and Norman inhabitants of Kilkenny lived in towns and villages, the plague hit them far harder than it did the native Irish, who lived in more dispersed rural sediments. In my personal opinion, shouldn't be burning witches. Mm-hmm. Sure, this came from them. Yeah. Lord knows I'd do it. <laughs> so then in 1904, King Edward VII. The second? There's only two? VII. Oh, oh Lord. Uh, Seven? Seventh. Okay. King Edward the Seventh of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and his wife, Queen Alexandria, visited Kilkenny. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, Ireland's medieval capital, Kilkenny, is home to numerous narrow and dimly lit cobbled streets. Oh, that's such an image. And most notable, haunted spots, including Shankill Castle, Kyletter's Inn, and St. Mary's Church. Oh. Setting the scene. Now we're on to your favorite part. Yay! We always have to do a little bit of backstory. For sure. Gotta set the scene. Yeah. So... Kilkenny has been named one of the most haunted places in Europe by a travel magazine. A storied past filled with tragic events that left behind spirits that visitors still witness today. A 1763 tragedy when 16 people drowned in the river after a bridge collapsed during a flood. Oh no! Wait, why are you crossing the bridge during a flood? Why is there 16 people on this bridge? That must be like a, I was going to say a pretty big sturdy bridge but apparently not (laughs) today people report seeing creepy figures in the river of nor that rise above the mist in the early mornings Ooh, Ooh, i don't like that no neither kilkenny's saint canvas dame alice kiteller was tried for witchcraft in the 14th century and her ghost is said to appear on the stairs located under the western window in this cathedral but Kaiteller's Inn, in the medieval square of the city, claims to have its own resident witch. The inn says that Dame Alice Kaiteller is a frequently felt presence in the bar and may even have been caught on camera. Cool. They claim a staff member took a few pictures of guests with some friends, and when they looked at the photos, there behind them was a black shadow heading up the stairs. And in the second picture, the shadow had moved which discounts any tricks of the light. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. So this witch, um, she seems to haunt both places. Okay. Well, I mean, she's got places to be, places to haunt. She's also got nothing but time. Yep. And a need for vengeance. But she doesn't seem to be, like, vengeful. vengeful. Well, just uh, photobombing. Yeah. <laughs> so the next up is Shankill Castle. An 18th century castle that was built by the Alleyward family, whose graves were on the castle grounds. Nice. Love a good castle graveyard. I mean, to be fair, I would totally live near a graveyard, like, 100%. I would not want it on my own personal property. Eh. I feel like that is inviting problems. Eh. You do you, boo. So, in 2014, Miss Cope explained to the Irish Examiner, in the 1700s, Peter Alleyward's body was placed in the vault, but his remains were stolen and never found. Oh. The legend goes that he was never properly laid to rest. His ghost now roams the upstairs corridors because it's never at peace. Mm. She added, there are certain parts of the house that spook her. The corridor Peter haunts is close to where her bedroom was. Getting from the light switch to her room would be the scary bit. She would get a bit of a chill and then make a dash for it. The Blue Room is another spot where people have sensed things over the centuries. She never saw anything, but she never felt like she was alone when sleeping there. Oh, no. No, no, no. I need... So, what? You can't be laid to rest, so now I can't lay to rest? Yeah. That's awful. That is so rude. I agree. Another phenomena of Shankill Castle is a phantom coach which would arrive outside the front door, an older man seen on the first floor, and ringing bells with a phantom monk. What? That is so elaborate. I know. (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) Yeah. 
Could you imagine, though, just leaving the castle and this random stagecoach is just out front? With bells and a monk? Hell yeah. Ringing bells and monk are separate. Oh. It's not one piece. Okay, I was like, wow. Okay, I thought for sure not one that piece. that was like a trifecta of just ghosts. Though that would be fabulous. <laughs> that would be so cool. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Unfortunately not. So our next place we're going is the Kilkenny Castle. Okay. It was built in 1195, and it is now maintained by the Irish state, and some of the rooms are open to the public. Owned by the Butler family for hundreds of years, this castle is reportedly home to as many as 41 ghostly inhabitants. 41? 41. Locals tell stories of a ghostly woman who roams the corridors and wanders lost and lonely through the castle gardens. She is known as the White Lady, Mm. but many think this is the spirit of Lady Margaret Butler, who was born in the castle in the mid-15th century. Some visitors to the castle believe they've even caught her on camera. An electronic visitor counter has reportedly continued to count visitors long after the castle gates close and have been secured for the night. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. That part of the castle is sited over the former dungeon where countless souls would have been incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So, fun fact, this castle from, I was trying to find, like, pictures of ghosts and ghost stories and, like, all of that kind of stuff. And you actually aren't allowed to take videos or photos in the castle. Oh, really? And there was one story. I didn't write it down just because, like, it didn't have enough substance to it yeah but there was a story about this mom and daughter who were in the castle just trying to sneakily take a photo of this mom was sneakily trying to take a photo of her daughter in the castle for the gram for the gram (laughs) and there was like figures behind her in this photo and they didn't notice it at the time because they had like quickly put their phone away yeah and then yeah when they were later going through it they seen these figures behind her and they were like freaked right out. Uh, yeah, that's really freaky. Right? Yeah. So, next one is Kilkenny's. Oh man, why did I not put a how to? <laughs> I'm sorry. Folks, Folksrath Castle <laughs> in Jenkinstown. <laughs> Bowelcrafts? I tried. Spirits including that of a female locked forever in one of the towers where she watches people from the window. Many people have the feeling of being watched when they're around the tower. Another ghostly woman who wanders the castle leaving a scent of wildflowers in her wake. Oh, that's so nice. Mm -hmm. And the ghost of a former guard. A guard at the castle once fell asleep while on duty and was thrown from the battlements by his superior officer's punishment. <laughs> Once a year in November, his footsteps are heard as he walks around to make amends for his inappropriate actions. That's so sad. Oh my gosh. Right? Oh man. Mm-hmm. So then another one is Kilkenny, an area around St. John's Parochial Hall. In May 1969, moving across, moving around on crutches, the ghost of a tall, lean woman with flowers in her hair and a long coat have been reported around the St. John Parochial Hall. She's on crutches? Yep. Oh. That, okay, if I were to, like, break my leg and then die, I would be very, very annoyed if I had to have crutches in the afterlife. I agree. So, next is Kilkenny Daenery. The old servant bells are said to ring themselves in early hours of the morning. Aww. Wait, the servant bells? Yes. Oh, no. That would be very annoying. Yeah. (sighs) And, like, could you imagine if they're just ringing themselves? No. I would shit my pants. Mm-mm. Kilkenny's Watergate Theater. The caretaker of the theater said in the local media that they hear footsteps and voices in areas which were empty and that the ghosts would stand in entryways. Oh, no. Get out. So, like, this whole city is just haunted as fuck. Super duper haunted. Yeah. 
Wow, it's like you go to the next building, there's a ghost, next building, like... Right? There's a whole place. It's all over the place. And lastly, we got the lore of the kingdom of Osiri. Okay. Osiri was a sub-kingdom, most of which was in country Kilkenny sometime before 1100. It was said that men from this kingdom could transform into wolves whenever they pleased. However, while in wolf form, their human bodies would be left at home. If moved, that person would be trapped as a wolf for the rest of their life. Wow. That was just a fun little piece I found. That is so interesting, though. Like, just that idea, like... You get to leave your human body behind to go running around and be a wolf. Story after my own heart. I, like, really enjoy that. If I could just, like, leave my body to go rest. Like, I just don't want to be a human right now. Mm Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And so, some of the websites that I used were historyhit.com, heritageireland.com, Wikipedia, of course, HobanHotelKilkenny.com, IrishExaminer.com, SpiritedIsle.com, IrishPost.com, and ParanormalDatabase.com. Nice. Yeah. Like, there was so much, and it was all really good and really interesting to read. Mm-hmm. Kind of makes me want to go to Ireland. Definitely. Oh, I've wanted to go to Ireland for so long anyways, but a ghost tours would definitely be the cherry on top. I agree. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to our I episode. Yes, you'll have to join us next week as we cover J stories. And then the last Friday of the month is coming up, (gasps) which means our second nocturnal novella is coming out. Yes, please tune in to hear that. That's our chance to read some fun stories. Mine are actually super fun, but not fun. Oh, okay. Well, mine are... Fun adjacent. There we go. So they're fun adjacent. We're really, really selling. (laughs) Yep, I had fun doing it. Exactly. Yes. That's all that matters. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Okay. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at L-E-X-X-A underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.